Indeed, thanks be to God for his word and his spirit who is with us. Who Paul tells us in this passage that the ministry of the spirit is more glorious than the ministry that Moses had. And we saw that Moses got to speak to God face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And we get more glory than that. Thanks be to God for the ministry of his spirit. May he illuminate our hearts today as we study his word and may it not be lost on us when we gather and we study God's word together that something significant happens when we do that. And may, may, while, it, while it may not always feel like transformation in our hearts, it is. The transformation is often gradual. But God will do his work by the power of his spirit through the ministry of his word when we study it together. Today, I have the opportunity to preach uh, for you, which is always a privilege for me. Um, the, the Holbrook family is on the beach uh, with Anna's uh, side of the family. Um, so pray they don't get bit by sharks or stingrays or whatever else down there. And that they have a restful time on the beach, um, you know, and don't have to go through many toll booths or get sand rash or whatever else. Um, and uh, it, it is a privilege for me to be able to stand uh, before you and proclaim the, the Word of God uh, with you today. It's always a privilege to do that in song uh, and in our congregational prayers, and I especially enjoy these opportunities. I appreciate your willingness to allow me to share this um, sort of pulpit that we have uh, here, the position of the pulpit, as it were. Uh, today we have the opportunity, as we do every time we gather, to encounter the transformative power of the Word of God together. And may this, may this not be an opportunity that we take for granted, nor an opportunity that we approach lightly. Consider the all of this truth, if you will, for a moment. The omnipotent and sovereign designer, creator, and sustainer of the farthest reaches of the universe. The Alpha and the Omega. The uncreated, eternal one. The immortal, invisible, most supreme and powerful being that has ever been or ever will be has revealed himself to us through the direct revelation of his word. Consider that this infinite deity not only made himself known to us through his word, but he continuously makes himself known to us by removing the veil from the eyes of our hearts that we might see Him clearly, that we might know Him intimately, and that we might become like Him. Consider that He Himself dwells within those who have responded to His revelation of Himself, ever comforting and guiding and transforming us by His mighty power. Today, may we not feel, fail to realize the wonder of these truths, that the infinite God makes himself known to finite creatures. This fact alone should continuously transform us from one degree of glory to another. And so today, with the holy reverence that God's glory demands, let us approach God's revelation of himself in the book of Exodus, this epic tale of deliverance that is drawing to a close for us within the next few weeks. May God's glory shine through his word today. May it illuminate our hearts today. And may we encounter him together in his word today. So turn with me, and you will, uh, if you will, uh, in your holy book or your holy app to Exodus chapter 34. 
I'm going to read the end of that chapter, verses 29 through 35. Exodus 34, 29, 35 says this. When Moses came, came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what, what, what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Will you pray with me? Oh God, thank you for the ministry of your spirit. Lord, that reveals to us more glory than Moses even encountered. Moses who spoke with you face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Moses who you uh, hid in the cleft of the rock and allowed him to, uh, to catch a glimpse of your glory. God, we see even more, for we see the face of Christ. Lord, and we have the illuminating power of your spirit God, thank you for this sign that showed the Israelites the transformative power of being in your presence. God, for we know it wasn't for Moses' benefit. He didn't even know it was for theirs. That they would know that when, when someone comes into your presence, lack of change is not an option. God, thank you that you still transform hearts and minds, that you mold every part of us to conform us into the image of Christ. God, let your word do that in our hearts today. God, let your word transform us. For we know it is only your word and your spirit that can do that. Lord, it's not anything I can say on my own. God, it's not any, any really anything else. God, you use many things to do your transforming work, Lord, but it's only because you empower us with your spirit that that transformation happens. Lord, so please, please, Lord, we beg you, let your word transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, we're drawing to a close on our journey of deliverance through the book of Exodus. And we know for a while, for at least for the past several weeks, the passages that we've been looking at, Moses has been on top of Mount Sinai speaking with God. And he had been on Sinai this most recent time uh, for 40 days and 40 nights. And the reason he had to go back up this time was to receive the second stone copy of the covenant of God with Israel. Because if you recall, he had the first copy and he came down Mount Sinai and he saw uh, the worship of the golden calf. Uh, and so he shattered that first copy, uh, I guess, either in anger or perhaps that was uh, some sort of symbolism of the law of God literally be, being broken there. 
And Exodus tells us that Moses atop Mount Sinai with God had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. It even specifically says he went without water. He went without food and water for 40 days and 40 nights, which, by the way, I don't recommend. It says he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And so as Moses descends Mount Sinai after these 40 days and 40 nights, I can just imagine he's probably cringing when he thinks about the last time that he descended Mount Sinai. When he found his idiot brother leading the people in idolatrous worship of a golden calf. And I'm sure Moses was thinking, they, they can't be dumb enough to do this again. But as uh, if, if we've retained anything from our journey through Exodus so far... Remember, they are dumb enough and so are we, right? They haven't exactly demonstrated excellent judgment so far this side of the Red Sea. And I don't think anything would have surprised Moses at this point. But this time, when he comes down, fortunately, he does not find Aaron leading the people in idolatrous worship of an idol. Um, They were ready for him. But... They saw him and they were immediately taken aback at his appearance because his face was lit up. I mean, Moses was literally glowing and probably not in like the the pregnancy glow thing, which may be like sweat or sunburn or something. Uh, No, his face was glowing with the glory of God. Now, Moses had been with, with God before, in the presence of God before, but this time there was a physical change in Moses's appearance. And they ask, why was it different? What, what was different about Moses' encounter with God this time on top of Mount Sinai? Well, as you recall from two weeks ago, this time on top of the mountain, Moses asked God, show me your glory. And God kind of did that. He sort of partially answered Moses' plea, hiding Moses in the cleft of the rock, covering him with his hand, and then allowing Moses to catch a glimpse of his back as he passed by. And even this, this slight glimpse of the glory of God that Moses caught there, that God allowed him in on, left Moses' face literally radiant with the glory of God. And I think there's some things that we can learn from what happened to Moses and then what happened when he came down the mountain and others saw his face lit up. And so let us examine a few truths together today from this narrative about what happens when we encounter the radiant glory of the God of the universe. Now, firstly, and this is not terribly profound, the first thing you'll see today is that encountering God transforms us. Now, Moses had been with God for 40 days and for 40 nights, really in a way that you and I can scarcely imagine. I mean, Exodus 33:11 says the Lord used to speak with Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. I mean, can you can you just maybe close your eyes and imagine that for a second? What what it must be like to be on top of a mountain for nearly six weeks communicating with the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe like a man speaks to his friend. I mean, Moses's communion with God was so intimate that he went without food and without water for nearly six weeks. Yet the Lord sustained him. The Lord spoke with him. I would imagine apart from 
the communion of Christ himself with his Father. This account is probably the most intimate relationship between God and man that we see in the Bible and maybe throughout all of human history. I mean, Moses, his very sustenance was the presence of God himself. How else could he be sustained for 40 days and 40 nights? God was his food. God was his water. God sustained him as he communed with him there atop Mount Sinai. Now think, think for a minute about the most intense high that you've ever felt. I'm not, I'm not asking you if you've done drugs or whatever. I'm thinking of like emotional highs maybe that you've felt. Like maybe uh, if you have kids, maybe the rush of seeing your newborn child for the very first time. There aren't even words for that. When you see your kid, and oh man, it, there's, nothing, there's nothing that compares. Or maybe uh, if you uh, are married uh, and you had been dating for a while, and, and maybe, maybe ladies, the, the rush that you felt when your boyfriend became your fiancé, when he got down on one knee with a ring in front of you. Or maybe think if you've ever had a loved one return from maybe a, a, a military deployment or some other long journey, and you saw them, that, that first glimpse you caught of them when they came back. Now God created us to experience those sorts of pleasures, and I believe that pleasure itself shows us grace of God. But these things pale in comparison to what Moses must have experienced, communing with God. As a man speaks to his friend for weeks atop Mount Sinai. Is it any wonder then that when Moses finally descended the mountain, he didn't even realize that he was changed, that his face was lit up, that he had been utterly transformed by this experience? See, Moses was so transfixed on God for these 40 days and 40 nights, his countenance was transformed. And Moses didn't even know it. But really, this is what the pursuit of God is like. As one commentator wrote, we don't glorify God by looking at ourselves, but by looking to Him. And as Kevin DeYoung says, we become what we behold. This reminds me of the first time that I uh, went snow skiing, which has been a long, long time ago now. I think I was in the eighth grade. Um, now, you know, if you've lived in Mississippi for a while, you know, we don't really get a lot of snow around here. We might get a, you know, little dusting, uh, you know, time or two a year, perhaps. But when we do, it's usually gone, you know, within a day or so, you know, dries up by, by like lunchtime. But what we may not realize, because we don't see a lot of snow in Mississippi, snow is a highly reflective surface, especially when it's like totally covering the ground. And even on a relatively cloudy day, the snow is very bright. And on a sunny day, even when it's really, really cold outside, the snow still reflects the sun very brightly because it's this solid sheet of white, right, on the ground. Now, all of that's obvious. If you've ever really looked at the snow, it's super bright. But I failed to realize that the first time that I went snow skiing. And so I got really, really sunburned on my face. And I didn't even think of the snow being that bright because I didn't notice it. I didn't notice that its brightness was sunburning my face. Now, let me say as an aside here, I'm not saying that Moses' face was sunburned. That's not, that's not the point of this illustration. The point is this. 
I was so enthralled with the beauty of snow-capped mountains and the thrill of snow skiing, which, by the way, is probably the most fun you can have on this planet, in my opinion. I had no idea that my face was being cooked to a crisp by the reflective sun off the snow. And this is what it's like when we are often in the presence of God. We may not experience some sort of tangible or emotional sensation that feels like transformation every time we read the Word of God. Every time we go before the Lord in prayer. It may not feel like we're being transformed. Sometimes it does. Most of the time it doesn't. But little by little, the transformation of the Holy Spirit sanctifies us from one degree of glory to another. And as we gaze more intimately and more intensely into the face of God as revealed to us in His Word, we gradually come to see more and more and more of His holiness which causes us to see less and less of ourselves. We see us for for who we really are. We are corrupt, depraved, and condemned lawbreakers of God's righteous standard. But as we see God more intensely, more intimately, and more clearly, the Spirit of the Lord frees us. In fact, 2 Corinthians says, where the Spirit is, there is freedom. And so the Lord frees us by His Spirit to be transformed by His power. Listen to those words again from 2 Corinthians 3 that Morgan read for us a moment ago. It says, If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what had once What once had glory has come to have no glory at all because the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now, Paul, when he speaks here of the ministry of condemnation, he's speaking of the law of God, which really acts like a mirror for us. It shows us how how far we fall short of God's glory. And while the law of God was true... And the law of God is eternal, and it declared the glory of God very clearly. Paul says that the ministry, it's the ministry of death, because it only showed to serve us what we deserved in our depravity. He goes on in verse 12 and says, Though since, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now much could be said about the symbolism of the, the veil here in Second Corinthians and in Exodus 34. But what I really want you to see here is the active work of the Holy Spirit that transforms us. In fact, I would argue that the only thing that has the power to truly, truly transform us is the Holy Spirit. 
No amount of willpower, no amount of encouragement, those are, those are good things, can change a depraved heart. But church, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom to become what God has created us to be by His power. But we must pursue Him. We must spend serious time dwelling in His presence if we want to see His transformation in our lives. Charles Spurgeon said this uh, in his sermon on this passage. Speaking of these, this pursuit of God, this intimate time with God. He said, Oh, for nights of prayer. Oh, for the close shutting of the closet door and a believing drawing nigh to God. There is no limit to the power we might obtain if such were the case. Though our faces might not be lit up with splendor, our lives would shine. Our characters would become more pure and transparent. And our whole spirit would be so heavenly that men would regard with wonder the brightness of our being. Thus, you see, the face of Moses shone because he had looked upon the face of God. See, encountering God transforms us. But related to this is the fact that encountering God transforms others' perception of us. That's our second point today. Again, not terribly profound when you're reading this, but there's a lot of truth in there. You know, it's pretty obvious when you read through this passage that Moses was changed. People noticed that he was changed. That's really all I've said to you today. It says, Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But this is an important part of why God transformed the appearance of Moses. After all, the Bible specifically says Moses didn't even know that his face was lit up. So I would argue that Moses' face glowed specifically for the benefit of those who saw him. God did not have to give this external sign of his glory. This reminder that Moses had been with him. I mean, after all, like I said, Moses has been with God at this point many times. He saw him in a burning bush. He saw him in the cloud and in the fire and atop the mountain. I mean, Moses has done a lot of dwelling with God. God didn't have to give this sign, the glowing face. But this time, God made Moses glow in the dark. And I think the only reasonable explanation here is so that the Israelites would see Moses and know that something was different. They would perceive the transformation. And so what was their response to noticing this transformation? They were scared. And it's often like when, when angels show up in the Bible, you know, we have this like idea that angels are super pretty and playing harps and stuff. You know what, you know what the angels' first words are every time an angel shows up in the Bible? Do not fear. Angels must be terrifying because they radiate the glory of God, just like Moses did here. So they were scared. They must have noticed his glowing face a ways off. Because it says Moses called to them and they wouldn't even come up to him. Now this is very much like they've responded to God's revelation of himself before. Remember back in Exodus 20, God revealed himself through thunder and lightning and smoke. It says, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us, Moses, we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So why were they afraid of Moses? 
because they finally remembered, unlike the last time that Moses came down the mountain, that God is powerful, God is holy, and God is to be feared in His holiness. See, one look at Moses. Moses, you just caught a bare glimpse of the glory of God, and they couldn't even handle this sight of the reflection of God's glory. Now, obviously, they knew that God could and would show up in power and in righteous judgment. And they also knew that God would use Moses as the agent of his judgment. He had done that recently when he he came down from the mountain, saw that golden calf, ground it up, made him drink it. Then had all the, the sort of ringleaders of that idolatry killed by the sword. They knew that God was holy and to be feared if they were in rebellion. But Moses had spent over a month on top of the mountain. And this time they hadn't made any dumb decisions like build another idol to worship. And so what made them afraid of Moses? Simply because his face was shiny. Well, I think it was the realization that Moses was different because he had been with God. And it made them painfully aware that Moses had been transformed and that his transformation was radical and it was impossible not to notice. You know, in sort of Uh, evangelical churches over the past half century or so, we've placed a lot of emphasis on having a personal relationship with God. And rightly so. I think it's absolutely true that we are not simply Christians because our parents were, or because we were raised in church, or because we, you know, went to a BSU, or we we just live in a culture with churches on every corner. That doesn't make you a Christian. You become a Christian when you, you repent of your sin and you place your faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. And grace finds you, right? So I think this emphasis on a personal relationship with Christ is good and it's right. But I fear that that good and right emphasis on the personal relationship part of Christianity, which again is where it starts... But in the process of of believing that, rightly so, we've also bought into a lie. That because our faith in Christ is personal, that it's something that should be private. But nothing could be further from biblical Christianity. So we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And if that's true, then that decision is not private. That decision has ramifications on everything we do, everything we say. The way that we treat people. In fact, the first act of obedience for one who has accepted Christ as Savior and Lord is to go get baptized in public, to publicly profess their faith. There is nothing about your personal relationship with Jesus that should be private. should shout it from the rooftops, church. Would anyone in your sphere of influence be surprised to learn that you're a Christian? Ask yourself that. Does anybody even know that you're a Christian? Or do you radiate the glory of God by the way that you treat others? By the things that you say to others? By the message that you proclaim to others? Or are you content to keep your faith to yourself? Or does it shine forth in your life? See, because if you have encountered God... And even more so, if you are in the habit of regularly seeking God through His Word and through prayer 
and through worshiping in the gathering of the saints together, if you are in the pursuit of God, you will be different. And people will notice that difference. And let me tell you, church, if people don't notice the difference, it's probably because you're not pursuing God. Because it is impossible to encounter the Lord and not be transformed. And it's impossible to be transformed and people not see that difference in your life. It's like Bryce has told us recently. You, don't, you can't say that you got ran over by a Mack truck and walk in here like nothing happened. No, you will be different if you get run over by a Mack truck. How much more will you be different because you've encountered the God of the universe? Because He has saved you by His grace. Because He dwells in you by His Spirit. He reveals Himself to you in His Word. You will be different if you pursue God. And people will notice that difference. And one of the ways that they'll notice that difference is in the things that you say. Because encountering God also transforms the message that we proclaim. It's our third point today. Now at first, the people were afraid to come near to Moses. For even the reflection of God's glory strikes fear into the hearts of unrepentant sinners. But then Moses called to them, and they came to him. And he told them all that the Lord had told him. When he was on top of the mountain. Now remember, the last time Moses interacted with the Israelites, it wasn't pleasant. He had disciplined them severely on behalf of God. And this time, he could have further chastised them for not seeking the Lord. He could have blamed them for having to go back up on the mountain and get another copy of the covenant. Since he had destroyed destroyed the first one when seeing them in their idolatry. Yet this time, Moses to come before them with grace and with compassion. He talked with them, says he told them all God had said, and he even put a veil over his shining face afterwards because it was hard for them to look onto his face. Which I think even the veil was an act of compassion for Moses. Now we can learn from this example. There is certainly a time for chastisement. But when we bring God's message... We always have to do so with truth and with grace. Now, it's very easy for us, particularly if we've been a Christian for a long time or been sort of embedded in church culture for a long time, it can be easy for us to become haughty as Christians. And we can feel very content, like like the Pharisees on on our moral high ground. And we don't read about the Pharisees and think of ourselves there. But it's something that kind of happens gradually. We get, we get sort of haughty. We might look at somebody's life and say, you know, what, what kind of idiot is stupid enough not to believe in God? The fool says in his heart there is no God. Or, you know, we may look at someone and who, who's leading a life that's, that's full of sin. And we may say, how stupid do you have to be to do, to do drugs? Or how stupid do you have to be to ruin your marriage? Or, or to make money the most important thing in your life and, and neglect your family and all that's important for the pursuit of wealth. How stupid can you be? I would never do that. You get what you deserve. You know, maybe those things are true. Maybe we are justified in feeling that those who are caught in sin or those who reject God outright will reap what they sow. But you know what's also true? That apart from the Holy Spirit lifting the veil from our hearts, you and I will be just as lost. So when we see the glory of God, 
And when we taste His love overwhelming, His grace beyond measure, we become ambassadors of that grace. We bring a gospel message that doesn't condemn those who already stand condemned, but instead offers them love that is overwhelming and limitless grace. We tell them, do not be afraid. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you, for He is a God merciful and gracious, as we saw last week. A God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who keeps that steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the grace that we proclaim when we share this gospel message. And this is the way the message of the gospel was proclaimed by the first uh, Christian martyr in Acts chapter 6 and 7. The martyr named Stephen. Now Stephen in the Bible, not that Stephen, I mean maybe him too. Stephen is described as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And full of grace and power who was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And kind of like the Israelites wouldn't come near Moses because they knew he had been with God. The people around Stephen, it says, the Bible says, could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So, kind of like what happened to Jesus, they falsely accused him of blasphemy. They had him arrested. Then you know what they noticed about him? This is, this is pretty cool. And you may not, you might think I'm stretching here. Acts 6.15 says, you know, they, they arrested Stephen. They, they, you know, falsely accused him. He was in custody. And it says, in gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, I don't know if this Stephen having the face of an angel. It feels so weird saying that. <laughs> but Stephen in the Bible having the face of an angel. I don't know if it's describing the exact same phenomenon we see with Moses in Exodus 34. But I don't think that Luke, the author of Acts, is trying to tell us that he was a really good looking guy. That he had the face of an angel. But it specifically says he had the face of an angel and they noticed it when they looked at him. This man who was full of the faith, grace, and power of the Holy Spirit shone with the glory of heaven. And like Moses, we see that Stephen has spent a lot of time with God in his word because he knows the thing backward and forward. In fact, if you read through Acts chapter 7, which you can do later, it's probably one of the most thorough chronological recountings of the Old Testament in the Bible. Like you can pretty much read Acts 7, you're like, okay, Cliff's Notes of the Old Testament. And Stephen recited this from memory. Because he had been with God in his word. And because of that, he radiated the glory of God from his face. Stephen's message was bold because he was not afraid. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So we can proclaim this message boldly. Acts 7 tells us, that when they heard the message that Stephen proclaimed, when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. See, when we spend time getting to know God intimately, we become filled not only with the sort of academic knowledge of His Word, 
but with word that is put into action, which manifests itself as the fruits of the Spirit in our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. When we behold the glory of God, we are then able to proclaim His message with compassion, with boldness, and with a life that is consistent with that message. And what we will see happen when our message is transformed by being with God is that we'll see that encountering God draws others to encounter Him. See, though the Israelites were at first afraid of the radiating face of Moses, they soon were ready to sit and to listen to Him. And this soon became their sort of pattern. It became what they wanted Moses, it says, would regularly go in and speak with God. And by the way, it doesn't ever say that Moses' face stopped glowing. This could have been the way he was for the rest of his life, just shiny-faced Moses. And Moses would go in regularly to speak with God, and then he would come out, and they would listen to what he would say from the Lord. Now, this is the pattern of the Christian witness. While at first, your relationship with those who don't know Christ particularly if, if your life is transformed, those relationships can be kind of awkward. Maybe they even sort of fear you. Maybe not in the same way the Israelites feared Moses, but they definitely think there's something weird about you and that's okay. But when we become people who shine with the grace of Jesus, people who speak boldly the words of Jesus, eventually people see that light and they're drawn to that light. Now again, let me reiterate, I'm not saying that we don't speak the words of the gospel. Now we do. We don't just treat people kindly and expect people to come to Jesus. No, we proclaim the news of the gospel. For it's only in hearing the word of God that people can respond to it. So we proclaim the word of God boldly and radiate the grace and light of Christ into a dark world. And is this not what Christ himself taught us? Matthew 5 says, speaking to the church, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket or under a bushel. You know, we let it shine, right? We put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now notice the pattern there. We shine before others. We don't hide it. We shine and the people see those good works. And then they give glory to the Father because they're drawn to the Father. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Moses' face wasn't lit up for his own benefit. In fact, I imagine the only mirrors back, you know, back then were maybe the glint of a sword and a, a, you know, a puddle in the ground. It wasn't for him but for those who were around him so they could look upon Moses and see his shiny face. And in the same same way, we are not called into relationship with Christ to keep it to ourselves, to hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. We shine from the hilltop. We shout it from the mountaintop. We illuminate the darkness. To all those who see the indistinguishable, inextinguishable light of Christ in us would be drawn to him. So that they would see our good works. So they would hear us proclaim the truth of the message of the gospel. 
And that they would be drawn to the glory of the Father just as we have been. Now I want to close with something that I think is uh, pretty incredible. And I'll give credit to Spurgeon on this one too. This is not something I found on my own. You know, we can see parallels between this story of Moses and between another story in the New Testament. And that's the story of the transfiguration of Christ. I want to read that story to you from uh, the Gospel of Matthew uh, in chapter 17. It says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And get this. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses, there he is, and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here with you. If you wish, I will make three tents here. <laughs> you see Peter like fumbling, like, what do I do? I should make these guys a tent. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, it's pretty easy to see the parallels in the transfiguration here. And what's recently happened in Exodus that we're looking at. They go up on a mountain, just as Moses did. A radiant transformation takes place. God appears in a cloud and speaks. They were afraid. But this time in Matthew, the transformation is Jesus, whose face and clothes are lit up like the sun. And this is the incredible thing that I want you to see here that I've, that I've never noticed before. It's the significance of Moses being present at the transfiguration. Now, I just always thought that that is sort of, I mean, it, that it really happened, but it's sort of like Jesus confirming that he's, you know, bringing the old covenant in. Like, you know, that, that, that this is all, you know, God's telling the same story here. And so Moses and Elijah are sort of representative of the Old Testament saints. Which I think that's also true. But I think there's also something significant about, like, actual Moses being present on the mountain with Jesus. Now remember, I talked about this earlier, but Exodus 33, Moses asked God, please show me your glory. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. While my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft on the rock of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. So God sort of only partly answers Moses' plea here for God to show him his glory. But then here, on top of the mountain of transfiguration, Moses is there. About 1,400 years later, Moses is there. And God fully answers his prayer 
to show him his glory. It took 1,400 years, but finally Moses gets to gaze upon the fullness of the glory of God because he got to look into the face of Jesus. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in Him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him, Jesus, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. 2 Corinthians 4 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we want to see the face of God, we look at Jesus, for Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. When we encounter Him, when we know Him, when we proclaim Him, we radiate divine light into a dark world. See, church, you and I are like the moon. We don't have any light of our own. But we're meant to reflect the glorious light of the sun. Jesus is the Son. He is the glory of God. His glory is not reflected. But He calls us to reflect His glory, to be His image bearers, and to reflect His light for all to see. As Kevin DeYoung said, I said earlier, we become what we behold. He also said that we are transformed by what we are transfixed on. So church, what do you behold? What are you transfixed on? What do you spend your time consuming? Where do you dwell? Because whatever it is, that'll be what you radiate to the world. Will we, like the, the, the Israelites, be a stiff-necked people? Or will we become shiny-faced people who emanate the glory of Christ? Of course, we may not have literal shiny faces, but 2 Corinthians says we've encountered more glory than Moses. For we have seen Christ, and so we emanate more glory. So what is different about you when you've been dwelling in the presence of God? What does that glow look like in your life? I know for me, there's a direct correlation between the grace with which I speak and act and how intensely I've been pursuing the Lord and His Word and through prayer. And I bet if you look at your own life, that's probably true for you as well. But the good news, that when we pursue God, God does not withhold His glory from us. In fact, the psalmist declares in Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. You know, the transformative work of the Spirit in us never fails, because the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image 
from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Spurgeon gave this challenge. He said, would you shine in the valley? First, go up the mount and commune with God. Would you shine, my brethren, with superior radiance? Then be this your fervent prayer. Make thy face to shine upon thy servant. And if the Lord lift upon you the light of his countenance, there will be no lack of light in thy countenance. In God's light, you shall give light. So today, church, may the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glory of Christ. Lord, for the light of his glory has broken through the darkness of our hearts. God has broken our stiff necks. God has caused us to be transformed. God, thank you that you still transform us. God, even after that initial transformation of trusting in Christ, Lord, that's just the beginning. Lord, for we are continually being transformed from glory to glory by the power of your Spirit in whom we have freedom. God, we ask that you would do your transforming work in us. Lord, that you would cause us to pursue you with intensity. Lord, to pursue, to pursue you intimately. God, to be constantly in prayer and often in your word and often in the gathering of your saints. God, that it would transform us, that it would transform the way people look upon us, that it would transform what we say, that people might be drawn to you for the sake of your radiant glory. God, thank you that you do this. Lord, not in our power, not in our strength. Lord, but through your power, which never fails. God, as we come now to this time, we remember what Christ has done for us, opening the way for us to encounter his glory. God calls us to approach it with reverence. God, knowing that uh, you are the one who does the work of salvation. You are the one who does the work of sanctification. And Lord, we just ask for you to come in power in Jesus' name. Amen.